0: And welcome to On the Nature of Things,
1: a history podcast about people, literature, and nature, hosted by me, Chloe Fairbanks. And me, Mary Hitchman. We investigate how the people of England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland understood and engaged with the natural world from 700 to 1700. With a thousand years of history to cover, let's get started.
0: Today we're diving, see what I did there, into the subject of water in medieval and early modern life. Environmental scholarship has tended to be pretty landlocked in focus so we're excited to delve deeper into the watery side of
1: things. To start things off we're going to be hearing an extract in translation from The Seafarer, a 10th century poem from the Exeter book which is the largest known collection of old English literature still in existence.
2: Bitter-breasted cares have I abided. Explored in a boat, many sorrowful places, the terrible tossing of waves. Where the narrow night watch often seized me at the stem of the ship, when it crashes upon the cliffs. Oppressed by chills were my feet, bound up by frost with cold chains where these sorrows aside, hot about the heart, hunger tearing within the sea-wearied mind. He does not know this fact who dwells most merrily on dry land, how I, wretchedly sorrowful, lived a winter on the ice-cold sea, upon the tracks of exile, deprived of friendly kinsmen, hung with rimey icicles, hail flies in showers, There I heard nothing, except the thrumming sea, the ice-cold waves.
0: In medieval and early modern Britain, water was everywhere. It was pretty much a central feature of everyday life, affecting everything from people's religious beliefs to their modes of travel and sources of food. And obviously people needed fresh water to survive. Very true. And this wateriness has really affected how Britain sees itself, from the medieval period to today. You're probably familiar with the idea of the sceptered isle that Shakespeare immortalised in Richard II, and this really was how England in particular saw itself by the dawn of the
1: 17th century. Sorry to be a pedant, but Britain is technically not an island. It's actually an archipelago. I won't tell Shakespeare if you won't. (laughs) Although the idea of Britain as an island nation still persists today, in the early medieval period it was actually rivers that formed a core part of daily life. In fact, most settlements were built along or near rivers. So rivers were hugely important for many reasons, among them territorial delineations, sources of travel and trade, and of course access to water for basic living needs. Early Welsh laws even regarded major rivers as one of the main features of a boundary between two territories. Place names
0: were often derived from water, such as the Tyburn in London, which comes from an Old English word meaning the boundary
1: stream, and the Medway meaning middle water. Another watery space associated with boundaries were wetlands, which had a religious dimension as boundaries between this world and the next. Spooky. In Old English poetry, water is often depicted as a figurative boundary,
0: or even a channel between the human world and the otherworldly. Because of this, water is often used as a symbol of isolation, we heard an example of this in the excerpt from The Seafarer, where the sea is presented
1: as a source of both fear and awe. So flowing water was necessary for many industries, from washing wool to processing the hides of slaughtered animals in tanneries. Water also provided a really important source of food in the form of fish. Meanwhile, increasing commercialization and the need to transport goods and people in greater numbers led to the creation of canals in the late 10th and 11th centuries.
0: Water had religious significance as well. In Christian belief, pagan shrines could actually be purified with holy water
1: and many springs and wells were actually linked to saints. On the pagan side of things, bodies of water like rivers and streams were said to be haunted by spirits who would either help you or harm you. Because of their role in both pagan and Christian belief, bodies of water could be extremely contested
0: spaces. There was a resurgence of pagan beliefs following the Viking conquests in the 9th century, and this seems to have led to increased pressure from the Christian church to suppress pagan practices, especially those related to water. The 10th and 11th century Bishop Wolfstan even specifically forbade the worship of wells. Well, well, well. (laughs) (laughs) Moving swiftly on to the later medieval period, water continued to be significant in literature, especially as a spiritual site or a place of guidance. Middle English romances such as Sir Tristram,
1: for example, often feature water having symbolic, magical or supernatural meanings. So in these romances, water usually reflected the protagonist's needs to overcome a challenge, including his own weaknesses. So for both the early and late medieval periods, water offered a powerful medium for thinking about human suffering. Returning to the podcast today is Island Malcolm from Penn, who schooled us on big fish. I will
0: jump in with the juicy questions with what did medieval writers know about marine and coastal spaces? And to what extent is that knowledge mediated by their class or their occupation?
3: Thanks so much, Chloe. This is an amazing question and I'm really happy to be here as well. I think what I love about this question is that buried within it is this sense of what does anyone know about marine spaces? Often, I think when we talk about medieval science, we have to do a lot of work to explain that it's not lesser, only different. For instance, when we're talking about medieval medicine. We talk about how perhaps humoral theory enabled us to treat diseases that we don't even recognize now, like melancholia. But it's also quite evident that a lot of people died of infectious diseases, and so you have to kind of balance that. With marine spaces, you know, it's so recent that we discovered things like deep-sea vents. It's so recent that we captured the first living giant squid on video. We're constantly finding out new things about whales. And so I think there's almost the potential to wonder, is there a possibility that medieval people knew a little bit more about certain things than we did. Also, you know, thinking about the ways that migratory patterns have changed for marine species, particularly related to climate change, both then and now. So this the standard explanation, I guess, is that medieval people didn't know a whole lot about the deep sea or the open ocean, and instead would have known a lot more about the coastal areas if they lived near the ocean and the riverine environments. But, you know, the sea is sort of, in traditional criticism, is treated as this kind of blank space against which you humans define themselves. But increasingly in the later Middle Ages, as coastal fish populations were depleted, people did actually venture further out into the ocean. I mean, certainly, you know, Basque whalers were traversing the ocean in order to hunt whales. So even in Europe, I think that we have to kind of think about the practical knowledge a little bit more than we have in the past. For instance, in the 13th century, a very well-known scientist with whom I'm a little bit obsessed, Albertus Magnus, ventured out on a whaling voyage basically to watch what happened. And he gives an um, extensive description of how the whale was caught, how much fluid it generated. It was pretty obviously a sperm whale because of the the fluid that he's talking about. And concludes this section on whales by saying that we're not going to talk so much about what Aristotle said, about what the ancients said, because what they said doesn't agree with what I observed with the experts. And so he's defining the experts as fishers. So to make a long story short, it's a little bit difficult to know how much the Middle Ages knew about the ocean because the people who knew about it were not necessarily the people writing things down. But I think that it's pretty obvious that there was deep knowledge of food species at least and their sorts of habitats and their migrations and what they were useful for in human terms.
0: That was fantastic. Thank you. Also, I love the idea of him being like... (laughs) Aristotle he didn't know anything but this guy that I met yesterday on the boat nailed it
3: Yeah especially because he's writing a commentary on Aristotle so it's it's really significant that he takes a break from Aristotle for a little bit to say well you know this guy
0: I especially love that because I feel like Aristotle would have been very cross about that and anything that makes ancient philosophers cross I'm like hey <laughs> <laughs>
3: And here's another lacuna, which has been really thoroughly explored by people like Richard C. Hoffman and the environmental historians. It's a lot easier to reconstruct what wealthy people ate, because we have market records, we have legisters, we have domestic records, we have archaeological sites. But it seems pretty clear that there was a distinction in terms of the species as well as the method of preservation, especially in the later Middle Ages. So, things like whales and sturgeon, which by the early modern period, I think in the 14th century actually were designated Royal fish, but even in the beginning in the 11th and 12th centuries had started to be associated with the nobility. So, Alan of Lille associated the sturgeon with the tables of Kings in Point of Nature because these fish had already been, well, in this case, the sturgeon (laughs) habitat loss had sort of resulted in the depletion of local populations to the point that they became more expensive, and their similarities to flesh were also sort of valued. Essentially, there are some fish that are a fast food for the wealthy. So things that were consumed during the 130 days or so when you couldn't eat meat, and so you'd eat fish instead. Broadly considered, famously, you know, the beaver was designated a fish during the early era of North American colonialism. And then there were other fish, things like herring, that were preserved, transported over large distances and might be in the early Middle Ages. We're talking more about subsistence fishing toward the later Middle Ages. We're talking more about open ocean fishing, fish that were then sort of salted or brined and distributed throughout England and Europe to people who maybe were not quite in the, in the level of the nobility. And herring actually crashed, I believe, I believe a few times due to how useful it was for this purpose. And in contrast, the nobility was more likely to consume fish that was fresh, that was locally caught, that was not sort of traded in this preserved form. So yeah, the class difference expresses itself in terms of who's doing the work and what kinds of things different people are eating.
0: I did not know the beaver fact, and I will now be sharing that with everyone I know.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, well, you know, aquatic animals, broadly defined. So, and that's also crucial. When I say fish in this context, I'm kind of, I kind of mean it in the medieval sense of just a thing that swims in the water, you know, so whales, obviously, you know, I wouldn't call them a fish today, but... They sort of fell under that heading in the Middle Ages.
0: Yeah, that either. This is. I'm just. Oh, I'm learning so much already. This is great. So I think you've touched on this already primarily from the food subsistence perspective, but could you talk a little more about sort of generally the role that the sea played in medieval British life? I'm thinking particularly given, obviously, we get it more sort of aggressively patriotically in, say, Shakespeare, but that sort of, ah, yes, we are the island nation. We define ourselves by the sea. Yeah, what I'm curious about is to what extent does that hold true in the medieval period?
3: Yeah, I'd be interested to hear more about your take on and how it works in Shakespeare. Sebastian Sebaki's work has been important in establishing a longer history of this island nation idea, and also in problematizing it, thinking about what it means to be not only an island, but coastal. Sebaki's so edited volume has some great work by Catherine Clark and David Wallace on the coastal nature of Britain and the ways that it's sort of a more permeable boundary and a fluid boundary as well, one that changes over time. But I think also, I mean, <laughs> the nature of Britain is quite different in the Middle Ages, you know, I mean, it's not fully totally unified island now, for sure, but it certainly wasn't then either. At any point in the Middle Ages. Honestly, I don't know as much about the conceptions of nationhood, but I think maybe the instability of it is something to emphasize.
0: That sense of instability is that mediated at all by which part of what we would now call Britain you're living in? How regional? is that relationship to the sea and that understanding
3: of it. Yeah, there's, you know, people who work on the Mediterranean have, have been especially vocal in thinking about this. But also, I mean, thinking about the interactions of cultures and the colonial ventures that happened all via the sea, even if these were short-lived, I think they're things that we have to build into our conceptions of the ocean, the ways that oceanic travel is a way of cultures like attempting to assert dominance over or attempting to control other others, even if, yeah, I mean, colonialism is colonialism even if it doesn't last very long basically.
0: And I think that actually leads very neatly into my next question which is to do I guess on a more global scale but who had jurisdiction over these marine and coastal spaces. I mean you know jurisdiction in terms of how humans conceive of jurisdiction but yeah how did medieval people view jurisdiction over these marine coastal spaces? And how was that jurisdiction determined?
3: Yeah, my understanding is that there wasn't a lot of talk in the way that we have these sorts of clearly defined boundaries. Now, I think that's more of an early modern, even like later, the law of the sea thing. But certainly rivers and coastal spaces were more explicitly managed, especially in France, there were actually statutes that were designed to combat overfishing. And I mean, thinking also about places like Holland, where the coasts were drained, and so that's changing the shape of the coast and the ways that the land interacts with the sea. I think with the sea, it's a little bit more of a blank canvas. Certainly, it didn't seem like an issue to people like the Basque who were crossing the ocean and entering territories that were either at that point or historically occupied by Indigenous North Americans. You know, it sort of doesn't doesn't really come up. It's like, oh no, we're, we're uh, getting into someone else's territory here. And I think with the literary texts that I study, there's a lot of sort of just this is a long-standing romance tradition where you just kind of go out to see And then you meander about a little bit. And where you are doesn't really matter. I'm really a big fan of The Voyage of St. Brendan, which is this great adventure story about an abbot and his monks who wander around in the sea looking for the earthly paradise for seven plus years. And people have tried to kind of figure out exactly where they are because there's a volcano that comes up at some point. So maybe that's Iceland. There are some icebergs. But then again, there's also Judas who's just hanging out. You know, it's this kind of semi realistic topography. And so, yeah, I think traditionally there's been this split between is this a totally imagined geography or is there some place that we can associate it with or for instance in Chaucer a lot of people have sort of gone wandering on the coast of Brittany trying to look for the place where the Franklin's Tale happened which is supposed to have these like big sharp rocks that are really scary and it just never seems to lead anywhere specific it's hard to pin down to an exact site it's kind of this more open space the space of possibility in a lot of the literary texts at least or at least that's how it's traditionally been read.
0: And it sounds from what you're saying as well as though, just again, thinking of it from the little that I know about the sort of early modern side of it, it sounds like that does fit with the sort of increasing desire to centralize and take control over things and you know clearly stake claims and it sounds like in many ways the medieval british conception of the seas are more sort of accepting of that uncertainty that space of possibility as opposed to going don't understand this got to put some jurisdiction over it
3: yeah there are a lot of colonial aspirations in britain in the middle ages but there, there's not as much of the wherewithal to make it happen it really is in literature that a lot of these ideas of king arthur sort of like unifying europe or something thing, or like reconquering the Middle East, you know, because that's what a lot of medieval literature is about via the Mediterranean. But in terms of the history, you know, England is like pretty marginal at, the, at this point. I mean, honestly, I think it's something that we need to talk about more because, yeah, as I was saying before, you know, these attitudes existed, even if they weren't always realized in practice.
0: That makes total sense. That was great. Thank you. How were aquatic animals perceived? And feel free to center this around the whale, if you would like. <laughs>
3: Yeah, the, the whale really fascinates me because of this continual overlap between whales and sea monsters. So is the whale a real creature? Is it something that can be fathomed? Or is it something ill-defined, singular, maybe force in the, in the water that's kind of bent on destroying humans? There's this traditional history that's told about human-cetacean interactions where in the classical period, there's a little bit of interest in, in Wales. Pliny writes about, a lot about dolphins, a lot about dolphins and how much they love humans, particularly young boys and how you can work with dolphins to catch fish and these collaborations that can emerge. And he writes about whales all over the world. And I think the traditional history is that that scientific or experiential understanding of whales kind of drops away until the early modern period when it comes back because people are sailing around a lot more. You know, being a medievalist, I'm sort of skeptical of any history where it's like, and then it just went away for a thousand years and then it came back. And I think things like Alberta's Magnus's text. There are instances of writers talking about whales in this very sort of analytical way. Hildegard of Bingen talks about what all the things you can do with whale parts. And a lot of medieval sources also talk about cetacean family relations in this way that really reflects modern understandings of cetacean families. So, you know, by the time you get to Bartholomeus Anglicus in the 13th century, he's talking about how whale calves stay with their mothers for a very long time, which is generally true. And, you know, apart from the occasional Scandinavian text that will really break it down into different species, it's usually just the whale, you know, you will have the whale and the dolphin, you won't have sort of the subdivisions of different types of baleen and tooth whales. But nonetheless, I think that we can see a sort of implied experience in some of these accounts. Right? And also, you know, there were a lot more whales at this point. This is pre-industrial whaling. There's some evidence that certain species of whales were seen near Europe that wouldn't be seen there now. Gray whales probably stand the whole Atlantic rather than the places where they're found now. There's even some evidence that large whales might've been in the Mediterranean at some points. I'm talking about whales a lot. <laughs> it's interesting to me to think about the, what, what would it mean if people actually interacted with whales? You know, What if we like sort of give these accounts a little bit more credibility than we often have in the past? But at the same time, there are these descriptions of huge sea monsters that come out of nowhere and threaten sailors for no reason. So are those things squareable I mean, I think even now we have this sort of difficulty understanding large sea creatures. And that's sort of why we're so fascinated is this balance of the whale is like us, it has these family structures, lactates which medieval people also knew but it's huge and can smash us very easily especially if we're trying to kill it even in this period there were stories of whales specifically attacking whaling ships, which, you know, while understandable, doesn't detract from that whole sea monster perspective. So I think, yeah, it's, it's always about kind of this interweaving of the wondrous and the perhaps more objective experience that really cannot be disentangled, much as we would maybe like to in, as moderns, you know, we would sort of like to put those in different books and put those books in different parts of the bookstore. But in the Middle Ages, it's kind of within the same paragraph.
0: And is that to an extent mediated by distance from the coastline? I know like whales would wash up sometimes. And I think we're then like, if they were over a certain size we're the property of the monarch or something, which is my favorite thing that I learned researching the podcast so far. But how does that sense of the mixing of the objective and the wondrous that you mentioned, how is that mediated sort of, I guess, the further you get out to sea, but also the further the sea brings that to you?
3: Yeah, I think that that was maybe Edward the Second, the royal fish thing. So like the head goes to the king, the tail goes to the queen, and then Herman Melville actually talks about this in Moby Dick. If you take away the head and the, and the tail, what's left of the whale? It's, anyway, yeah, there are a lot of medieval saints' lives too, um, particularly English saints' lives, where dolphins or dolphin bits wash up on on coast for saints to consume. You know, when they're really hungry, that wash up like sort of pre-cut dolphin bits.
0: An oceanic grocery store.
3: Yeah, right you know, just so, sort of go to the coast and uh, pick up your dolphin. So, so that's a good example of the wondrous and the realistic, you know, in quotes, in the modern sense, blending together because this is a thing that probably happened quite a bit and that we have some historical evidence that it happened of dolphins washing up on shore, but also because it's a saint's life and there's, you know, usually a, a supernatural element or a spiritual element where the saint is like, let's go down to the shore and see if there's food for us and they go down and lo and behold, God has provided. I also do like the sense that the sea might occasionally come to you and that um, cetaceans in particular have this kind of earthliness, which is actually something that the scientific texts often say that there's like an earthly nature to whales and dolphins that most fish don't have, enabling them to become islands at some point. I mean, this goes back before the Middle Ages, but these legends of sailors you know, landing on a big island, and then getting out of the boat and setting up, starting to cook their meal. And as soon as they light a fire, like the, the island dies. And it turns out it's a whale. Oh my goodness. Except in the voyage of St. Brendan, where this whale actually comes back and like enables their Easter party every year for seven years, which is a kind of interesting symbiosis. But in most texts, this is sort of a, a nefarious whale, or at least a whale hostile to human acts, but also it seems quite understandable to me.
0: Sea monsters aside, to what extent do you, you think sort of studying marine issues in this medieval context can help us to understand and confront environmental issues, particularly to do with the ocean today?
3: Yeah, I think that because overfishing and other concerns regarding the ocean are huge issues right now, and they were also in the Middle Ages, perhaps more than more than other environmental disasters, there are clear parallels in this earlier period. Things like sturgeons sort of declined rapidly in the Middle Ages, and sturgeon are still extremely endangered now. I believe the IUCN has deemed them the most critically endangered group of species. Salmon also declined, I mentioned the herring crashes. This combined with things like agricultural expansion, which contributed to increasing runoff, uh, wetland drainage in coastal regions, all of these things produced kind of environmental disasters on a scale that just made it one of the most important environmental issues of the Middle Ages. And I think it's also interesting to watch how this played out in specific regions and to watch the legislation that emerged as a result of perceived losses in aquatic wildlife, which always raises the perennial question of if the Middle Ages could implement environmental legislation, why are we having such a hard time with this now? Why can't we protect bluefin tuna and yellowfin tuna? adequately? Why is it so difficult for us to even classify these animals as endangered? And part of it is just the continuing lack of knowledge about marine spaces, but also these are hugely important economic species. And thinking through the ways that history offers us models for what happens when, like, we actually try to protect the things that our economies depend on, I think is really valuable. Also, thinking about the longevity of environmental issues as well. So if a species like the European sea sturgeon declines in the Middle Ages and still hasn't come back, I mean, obviously other things have happened to ensure its continuing struggles, particularly habitat loss. But thinking about how difficult it is to rebuild from environmental collapse, I think That's a really useful thing that pre modern studies can give us. But on the other hand, it's not all about negative examples from history. There are sort of hopeful things that we can gain from this type of research as well. Medieval understandings of the natural world and of the place of humans within it are so different from our own that they enable us to imagine how we could change our, our points of view. They enable us to imagine alternative ideas of humans as more embedded in their environments, which aren't, you know, medieval European. Perceptions of the environment are not completely things that we should totally emulate, but the mere fact of studying something that is different expands our understanding of what is possible now. I mean, yeah, you know, studying difference is always helpful for us.
1: So, Britain had a really interesting relationship with the sea. Yeah, so Britain's idea
0: of itself as an island nation with a particularly maritime character which we should note was often co-opted by England to alive the other parts of Britain, became especially prominent in the early modern period, particularly with the accession of James VI of Scotland to the English throne as James I. And by the mid-17th century, at least half of James's subjects made their living from the sea, so
1: you can really see how important it was becoming to British life. See the sea. Sorry. So, a really significant reason for the importance of the sea to British life was trade. Previously, trade had been mainly with Northern Europe, but by the 17th century, it was expanding transoceanically. This is when we get to the British East India Company, which was itself a response to the Dutch East India Company. <laughs> Britain had a benefit inferiority complex.
0: And let's not forget
1: that the 16th century saw
0: the creation of the Royal Navy in England, which, fun fact, was the world's first permanent naval force. Naval defence then became increasingly significant during this period. You might remember learning about England's victory
1: over the Spanish Armada in 1588. When war with Spain broke out in 1585, it also caused what some historians have called a privateering war. One famous privateer is Sir Francis Drake, who was second in command in the battle against the Armada. Among his many guises, Drake was an explorer, a sea captain, a naval officer, a politician, and he was also a slave trader. And this often gets covered up in his personal mythology. More ships and voyages meant more voyagers, and Britain's
0: seafaring population increased massively during the early modern period. But there were also sustainability issues. Increased reliance upon waterways did cause issues of overconsumption of
1: both the water itself and what was taken from it, like fish. Certain waters also became health concerns, with treatises warning that fens, marshes and sewers were linked to putrefaction and thus to disease and death. Water was also linked to good health.
0: Spas became increasingly popular throughout the 16th century, and popular medical authors such as Timothy Bright and John French wrote treatises debating the merits of the spa's waters. So what were some of the merits, out of interest? (laughs) Well, in case you were planning to use them yourself... The virtues of warm water taken inwardly include the fact that, quote, it allays sharp acid and gnawing humours, end quote, as well as helping with collar and inflammations of the throat and mouth. Cold water, meanwhile, was apparently conducive to long life. Hydrate or dehydrate, early modern style. Exactly. (laughs) In fact, the period saw an increased scientific study of water. In the later 17th century, Robert Boyle studied the properties of water and its fundamental components,
1: as well as identifying the salt content of mineral waters. So interestingly, water was also profoundly associated with women. So women often gathered water for the household and their bodies were associated with the production of liquids such as menstrual blood, tears and breast milk. Many medical texts at the time depicted the female body's production of fluids as potentially disturbing or shameful. One watery space that we haven't talked about as much is
0: wetlands. So we turned to Dr. Hilary Eklund from Loyola University in New Orleans for some help. She works on early modern literature and ecology, and her recent research has worked on bringing the importance of wetlands to light.
4: Well, um, thank you, Chloe and Mary, for having me and for that kind introduction. I'm so excited to talk about wetlands. I feel like people don't talk about swamps enough, so we're going to do some work to correct that over these next few minutes. So what makes wetlands different from other aquatic spaces? Well, I guess in a way, all aquatic spaces are kind of mixtures of plant and animal life, and they mix water and soil. But wetlands take those mixtures to a new level, kind of refusing to resolve them into one dominant paradigm. And so it's water and land. And as soon as you separate one of those elements, it's no longer a wetland, right? So William Howarth calls this parataxis, the juxtaposition of phrases side by side without any apparent relation. And I think it's kind of interesting to think about that bothness and how it sort of compels a different kind of attention than say, um, rivers and oceans, which can be easily navigated or clear running springs and streams that are Offer like a very obvious um, and very valuable resource which is clean water. So wetlands tend to like kind of confound our ideas about elemental purity through these mixtures and they also do fun things with our expectations about how plant and animal life are supposed to behave like plants in wetlands tend to creep. <laughs> they don't just grow straight up they're like kind of creepy and animal life often also kind of defies our expectations for how it's supposed to move because things have to sort of slither around these difficult to to navigate terrains. They also confound human notions of locomotion. So we know that people adapted all kinds of interesting ways of getting around wetlands with stilts and rafts and boats and things like that, because you can't just like walk across a marsh without getting very wet and, and very stuck. So yeah, I, I think wetlands are great because they they activate also this kind of aesthetic recoil that we're taught to think about them as sort of gross. But they're not. I mean, in, in many ways, if you, if you think about it uh, a little longer, they're the source of all our fresh water. They're these huge carbon sinks. They're like the kidneys of the planet and they deserve a lot more love than they get.
0: That was fantastic. And I'm also now making a mental note to acquire some stilts for the next time that Mary and I are on a walk in Port Meadow, which is just around the corner from us. And if any Oxford residents are listening to this, floods pretty much every summer. So it becomes like lake ringed in meadow. And despite having lived here for many years, Mary and I still sometimes forget that and get stuck. So I think wooden stilts could really catch on here. And what you said about the commingling of land and water in wetlands feeds perfectly, actually, into my next question, because it was making me think about England. Obviously, you know, England isn't actually an island, but it likes to think of itself as an island. It was making me think, you know, is there a distinct way that England is approaching wetlands because there's something in that composition that's very close to its identity as sort of an island nation, like potentially at risk of co- Coastal erosion. The main question in all of that word vomit is how were wetlands perceived on both a local and a national level in this period? And does that differ from wetlands overseas in sort of English colonies, places like the Americas?
4: So that's a really big question. And there are a number of different approaches to answering it. There's no way we could cover all of that today. But one thing we have to remember about England is that, you know, terraqueous spaces are probably familiar to most people. Most people live near the coastline. And so they're sort of used to that terraqueous ebb and flow of the ocean with the tides. And then England is just a very, very wet place. And in the early modern period, especially before the big drainage projects were undertaken in the 17th century, there was sort of an accepted custom of like living with wet spaces and, you know, digging trenches and building dikes and things like that to direct runoff or, you know, small pieces of arable land. And so that's a fairly widespread practice throughout the middle ages we see it in the somerset levels we see it in east anglia and the fens and the during those periods that i don't study (laughs) we don't see a ton of representation of, of wetlands apart from like appearing in like romances as these typical kind of dangerous spaces that people have to traverse as part of that wild howling wilderness so that seems to be kind of the default mode but then in the early modern period something really interesting happens like around the world in the 17th century where these huge public works projects start being undertaken. It's happening in Russia and Japan and China. The Spanish are bringing Dutch engineers to Mexico City it, as early as like 1614, consulting about how to drain the lake basin of Tenochtitlan. And of course, um, the English funds get drained during the, the 17th century. And these huge public works projects that are usually state funded are funded by corporations that have very cozy relations with the state. And so they're able to marshal the the resources and the labor that it would take to actually do something like drain the fens. I mean, that's, it. sort of beggars comprehension. That such a huge tract of land could go from being mostly wet to now just like entirely dry flat. It's like grain cultivation from, you know, as far as the eye can see, it's, it's kind of amazing. So I got really far away from your question about perception, because there are just so many, there are so many competing perceptions. But to talk about how wetlands were perceived abroad depends very much on the situation. And in most cases, when colonial explorers encounter a wetland, it impedes their movement through colonial space. And this is something that is very frustrating. And we find that in a lot of Spanish accounts. But there are other Spanish accounts where like people roll up on like a mangrove forest, and they're just amazed at the beauty of all these tropical flora and fauna. And they talk about the birds and just this arresting landscape that detains them in a different way, because they're so struck by its difference and its Beauty.
0: From what you were just saying, it sounds like there was almost maybe a division between how people who lived in around the areas like the fens in Lincolnshire, if they live near it and they're used to it, maybe it's a bit of a dangerous place. You know when to go there, what to do, when to not go there, but you know, it's your place. And then corporations from the city or, you know, overseas explorers come in and have these ideas of improving it or capitalizing on it. And from what I remember, locals were often well, locals in England, obviously, locals overseas were, you know, particularly upset and rightly so by this, but it was even within Britain, wasn't there a sort of popular resistance in those areas to drainage projects and such?
3: Yes,
4: absolutely. I mean, we know that these were areas of great and diverse abundance. And James C. Scott has this wonderful book called, uh, what's it called, Against the Grain? You know, because, um, because wetlands were so abundant, but also required a kind of seasonal adjustment to avail humans of that abundance. They resisted state making for a long time. And like state making requires sedentism, it requires like taxation, it requires a level of human organization that is very like antithetical to the land use practices that people use to thrive on wetlands. So yes, there was definitely resistance. Um, and there are wonderful archival documents documenting these drainage debates in the 17th century, where people are arguing both for and against different strategies of of draining that are incomplete. Um, So there's like a, a huge range. It's not even like a binary, like pro and con kind of approach. But people who lived in and around the wetlands were often depicted as kind of stubbornly rustic. And we even find in some cases, a lot of like, moral impurity ascribed to people who inhabit these spaces so we can think about the folklore of swamp monsters and fen demons and will-o-the-wisps down here in cajun country the -the will-o-the-wisp is called a fuffele i learned that not that long ago so things that lure people to their to their death in the swamp right but then you know dante takes this up milton that you know they both depict hell as a bog or a marsh John Bunyan uh, in his Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim Christian, sinks under the weight of his sin in the Slough of Despond.
0: What you've just brought up about the the locals and the perceptions of people who live near them, I did really want to ask, broadly speaking, who was using wetlands, both, you know, the locals who are dwelling near them and if officials from city and court are coming in, and what were those spaces used for? You mentioned vegetation and fresh water, but I wondered if you could expand a bit on that.
4: Yeah, um, so locals, like I said, adapted seasonal strategies for using the abundance of the wetlands, Um, and Joan Thirsk, the famous, Agricultural historian has written about the abundant livelihood available in the English Fens. You know, which was not only enough for the Fen dwellers to sustain themselves and make a comfortable living, but actually to generate a surplus trade to London. So they subsisted on things like hunting and fishing and fowling. Ancient customs of Turbary allowed them to cut and dry peat for fuel, and then they used local materials like sedge for construction. But you know, the fish and fowl that they were able to to collect often got traded away um, to the city. And so, you know, primarily they're being used by the people who know how to use them. And the people who come in from the outside really see them as waste. And there's that sort of aesthetics of the disgust that goes along with the fact that it can't be cultivated as such. And so to the extent that people do come in from the outside and see wetlands as useful, they're seeing it as farmland like in potencia, which means drainage. Of course, it's easy now to sort of demonize that view and be like, oh, they were so ignorant, they couldn't understand wetlands. But if you really put it in context of growing urbanization and a growing population that had escalating caloric needs, And the discovery that, you know, like grain agriculture is a really, really efficient way to deliver calories to this growing population. You can kind of see how it would make sense, how people would be like, wow, you know, if we drain this land, it would be super fertile because of all the sedimentary deposits and all the richness that the water has brought paradoxically. And then you end up with something like what the Fens look like now, which is beautiful in its own way, but kind of eerie how were wetlands depicted in early modern art and literature? This is a great question. So I mentioned, you know, the folklore that gives us things like swamp monsters and bog sprites and will-o'-the-wisps. And these are things that sort of compel human attention, but then reward that attention with perdition. And I think that this is what wetlands do. They are consistently compelling and eluding like human designs. So early modern literature often makes wetlands into these sites of sin and damnation. Uh, the misers and Dante spend their eternity in like this stagnant marsh that's supposed to remind them of their improvidence. The moral darkness that gets linked to wetlands also um, often takes up a kind of racial vocabulary of darkness and blackness. So we find tropes of that in Drayton's choreographic poem, *Poly Albion, where he talks about water black as sticks. One phrase that I found there that's totally fascinating is the plump thighed moor where he's playing on like the pun of the moor as a geographic space but also a moorish woman ostensibly and there's all kinds of really spicy stuff in drayton actually another example i've been thinking about a lot lately comes from ben johnson of course we know about johnson's treatment of blackness and the mask of blackness but a lot of those same racialized tropes are attached to the witches in the mask of queens who come from the lakes and from the fens from the rocks and from the dens. And Johnson, in the published version of that mask, has a little gloss saying, These are the appropriate, uncouth places from which such persons would come. Like it, it makes sense that witches come from fens. And so this is like a sort of stock representation that we get. The familiarity to people of those associations, I think, shows us how important it is to look at how representation happens. It's not an accident that 90% of the world's wetlands have disappeared since the 1700s. It's cultural attitudes that have shaped the material practices that are openly hostile to wetlands and and their inhabitants alike. And so once they're deemed as wastelands or havens for the improvident or sites of contamination, it seems easier to justify those kinds of practices that would render wetlands life as well as the customs that sustain it disposable.
0: It's sounding awfully gendered these depictions of wetlands.
4: Yeah, of course and like we we have only to think of like Grendel's mother here, you know, that monstrous mother but like that sticky matrix that is, you know, horrifying yet necessary the the necessary sort of point of origin. I don't find myself necessarily prone to psychoanalytic literary criticism, but I do think you can't get away from it when you're talking about wetlands because they are this fertile matrix for so much life. But then there's also stuff like, you know, Caliban, with all of his resistant speech. And I think this is another thing that that I'm excited to point out is that a lot of these representations of wetlands, like, although they might be more or less consistently negative, they're still really equivocal. And there's a lot of space to explore kind of resistant utterances. So when those witches come out, and they're like, yeah, screw heroic virtue and his white winged daughter fame, they mark themselves as opposite voices. And so claiming that kind 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 of resistance, the way that Caliban does, the way these witches do, I think gives us a way to think about other kinds of resistance to, you know, the fast violence of colonial incursion, as well as the slow violence of environmental degradation that goes along with it.
1: I love the idea of wetlands as like this countercultural resistant space. I think that's absolutely brilliant and it means that I've almost forgiven this bog in the Peak District that I fell into when I was 14 and I had that pulled out of. So thank you. Um, (laughs) You're really doing a lot for me and my childhood memories today. (laughs) I did want to ask you a question about eco-criticism. So how can wetlands help us to rethink eco-criticism in early modern contexts?
4: Well, one way is through their contested value. We know that things like old growth forests also have contested value, but everybody seems to be in agreement that they're worth something. You know, what they're worth to whom, is that. But wetlands have this contested value that goes back so far. And the way that that contested value gets transposed from the wetlands themselves onto the people who live on and near them suggests to me that an eco-critical approach to wetlands can't stop with a consideration of the non-human. It can't just be eco-materialism. So we actually have to bring in more discourses about valuation of life. And there's a lot of exciting work being done in other fields that are bringing together eco-criticism with critical race studies indigenous studies, post-colonial studies. But for some reason, I think early modern literary studies has a bit of catching up to do in that respect. So I'm really excited to be a part of that growing conversation and to think about the ways that we can really, you know, when we're thinking about eco-criticism, we're really thinking about ethics and justice. But who is justice for? And we can't really think about environmental justice in wetlands without thinking about the humans who've been treated unjustly and removed from those
1: to finish things off today we're going to leave you with some old english from one of the most famous poems we have from the medieval period beowulf in this extract beowulf recounts a swimming competition which vividly illustrates the perils of a life at sea a translation by tom cook is available on our twitter at the nature pod Have
0: don sword knackled, thou wit on sundreun heard on handa, Wit unk wit chron fixas, Weryon thogton, No he wit from me, Flod idem feo fleotan mechte, rador on holme No ich from him wolde. Thou wit at somne, On sa war on fief nichta fährst, of that unk flod to draf, Wado werlande, Weder at cheldost Nithenden nicht, On northern wind,
1: We hope you enjoyed swimming through this watery episode. Join us next week as we branch out into talking about trees. You
0: can follow us on Twitter at The Nature Pod, where we post all the stuff we couldn't fit into the episode and give updates on
1: what's to come. If you enjoyed listening, please leave a review, tell your friends, and subscribe. That way you will never miss an episode. Until next time. This episode was produced by Mary Hitchman and Chloe Fairbanks. The artwork is by Chloe Fairbanks. The theme tune is by Alexander Nakarada and is licensed for use under Creative Commons. Thank you to our actors for this episode, Ben Connaughton and Tom Cook, for bringing these historical texts to life. We are grateful to Torch Oxford for supporting this project.